Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Hello everybody, and welcome to Brass Chats. Today we have Malcolm McNabb, one of the most prolific trumpet players in the studio scene to ever live. He's been featured on over 2,000 soundtracks, and I we're very happy to have him with us today. Mr. McNabb, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. I've always wanted to know, when uh, you walk into a movie theater to see a movie that you're playing a solo on, on a scale of 1 to 10, how distracting is it for you? When I go walk in a movie When you go see a movie I don't walk in movie theaters anymore. <laughs> I, I ended that a long time ago. Well, that started by the time 1975 came. I've been in since 1970. I did a film, uh, probably the second or third film I did with John Williams was Jaws, 1975. And I had quite a big solo, and you know, people were playing volleyball on the beach, and it was a little promenade that, that he wrote that was very sort of Prokofiev-like, uh, and um, you know, it was it was subtle, you know. And um, I went to to the movies to see it. First of all, my first mistake was going to the movies. The second mistake was bringing my three-year-old daughter because she had nightmares about the shark, mm -hmm. of course, later. But the third thing was, you know, I, I couldn't hear myself. There was just the dialogue and sound effects over it, wiped it out, you know. <laughs> so. Had to wait for the soundtrack album to say, oh, okay, that's what it's like. I don't <laughs> want to go to the movies anymore. I grew up um, in movie theaters. My dad was a projectionist, and my dad, uh, I, I started uh, at nine years old on this trumpet that he had laying around the house. Started taking lessons, playing in school. And uh, by the time I was about 14, that's all I wanted to do. And now he, he thought it was time to start giving me the talk, you know. <laughs> no one makes a living playing the trumpet. Now, come on, you can't do that. Maybe that's why I made it, you know, because, uh, you know, I thought, well, that's, that's what I want to do, and I'm going to try to find a way to do it. So, you know, I've, 64 years later, I've been behind the trumpet all these years, you know. Yeah, like, and, like you said, how long have you been in L.A.? I've been, I was born in Cleveland, and at an early age, before I was even one year old, my folks moved out to L.A., so I'm a California boy. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, how long have you been in the studio? 45 years. 45 years. Of freelance and, recording, yeah, of all and, kinds. And you have played thousands of movies. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a couple thousand soundtracks, and if you want to break it down, actually, by the way, if you guys don't know, it's now up on the ITG website, my, all of my movie list, and, <laughs> and my, I have a video intro I made right here, actually. Okay. Uh, introducing myself and the idea behind this and identifying my stealth career, because it's all behind the scenes, all the solos I've had over the years uncredited, in all the 2,000 movie soundtracks, which includes Probably around 17 or 1,800 features, and then the rest is episode TV, which you guys are a little too young to remember. Okay. Because, like in around 1970s, like a studio like Universal Studios had about 30 shows on, and each episode, every week, had an orchestra on it. Well, and I they don't do that anymore at all. There's no stories, there's no sets, there's no, there's no music, you know? Yeah. And so reality TV kicked our butts on oh, that. You know? Different. Um, because you've been around and played so many films. What is it like to play in a studio? Talk about the vibe. Tell me about the job. What, what is it like to be a session player? First time I walked into the studio I was, studio I was working in last was the old MGM stage. It's now Sony. Um, we, had, we were there with, um, um, with John Debney doing a 102-piece orchestra. And uh, I hadn't done it for a while. And I'm sitting in the first trumpet chair on a, on a major motion picture. And it's sort of, I had butterflies. And they were very similar to the butterflies I had when I was there in 1971, the first time I worked with Jerry Goldsmith. Big orchestra, big picture, the Wild Rovers it was. And I was 
lucky to just sit there and watch it from this end of the trumpet section to the guy, Graham Young, who was playing doubling on uh, trumpet, piccolo, flugelhorn, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm glad I'm not in that chair today, at least to get a look at this and see what's going on. So I had those same kind of butterflies, not being, you know, being at, uh, in it once in a while, like, you know, a couple months since I was sitting there recording. So it's, um, it's pretty awesome. It's something you get used to, you know. I mean, it's a different pacing for sure. Now, um, when you say pacing, is it, what's the situation like? Do you get music in advance or do you show up and you know you're working today? That's hardly ever get any music in advance. So you have a lot of sight reading to do. Well, mostly, mostly, it's sight, mostly reading. sight reading. Yeah, you bet. And that's why, that's why you know, I mean, um, uh, I, without realizing it, I was preparing for this for years because I was always, when I got tired of trumpet music, I was doing violin music, I was doing flute music. My daughter was a flutist, is a professional flutist, so all the music she played, I played, you know. I was always trying to get my hands on music to read. Tell me the one thing, when you look back at Mr. Stamp, that resonates. What, what was it that is, is this, like the biggest thing that you took away from him that's changed you uh, for your entire life? Well, it, it all led to efficiency and knowing how to maintain yourself. And what we all have uh, in common is the goal is to get up the next day and play again. And more and more these days, uh, uh, trumpet players are playing in the big band at night and the quintet in the morning and you know you got to get these puppies back together sometimes to work and so just the stuff I learned about maintaining myself and sound production at the, at the very basic level was what something that stuck with me for a long long time yeah and uh, that's what you'd never leave as your basics and a lot of people don't understand that you know and that's why my summer workshops which we're going to talk about in the fifth season coming up is about that and the fact remains that we don't uh, audition for it so we can literally have out of 20 to 25 people, someone who's an absolute beginner, maybe just picked out a trumpet on the way to the workshop, all the way to the top professor in Montreal who was the last student of Maurice André. And that's a friend of mine, Thierry. Uh, that's up there. And they, they came in. Why does people, the professionals say, well, um, it's for beginners because it's about the basics, wrong. Uh, and the beginners say, well, it's about the basics, but you know, uh, there's professionals involved, so you know maybe it's not for me, but it's for everybody. We don't audition. There's no pressure to play. We just stick with the basics of being able to get up and play, warm up, warm down, all those things that we do. Because uh, especially for me, it's been a, a, a very uh, unusual pacing. You know, and I, when I say pacing, you go to a studio and you're sitting there and they're doing business. They're changing notes. They're changing things and working. And this, you can't make noise. You can't noodle. You can't stay warmed up. They take a 10 every, every hour, so you, know, you end up warming up and warming down mm -hmm. all day long. Yeah. And I've, I've learned to do that. And really, especially getting these puppies back together after a brutal blow uh, to play in the morning again, I, that was where I ran into uh, probably the best lesson I ever had with Stamp was over the phone. You know, I had studied with him and everything. I was already working, but it was a brutal week, you know, where I was working every day and every night. And... I was starting to not be able to do what I could do, you know, because of just the brutal thing at night. <clears throat> and Stamp said, well, why don't you get your horn now? And I was on the phone because we didn't have a time. I was too busy. He was too busy to get together for a lesson. So I had the best lesson of my life over the phone with him, cradling wow. the phone here. And he just told me, well, have you, have you tried? Uh, no articulation. Just blow the air until the lips start moving. Duh, no. Okay, we'll try that. Just get on a second line G and just blow air. And it was just pretty awful. It was like... Yeah. 
<laughs> and then finally, after a few tries, a little bit something came out. He says, yeah, good, okay, now, but, but no attack, no two, coo, poo, or anything. Just start the air and get a comfortable place on your lips and let the lips start vibrating with the air on their own. So, cut to the chase. Sort of sounds like an old cow or something like that. But you know what? Within five minutes, I was in ground zero. So that brought you focus. That was that's, yeah. a, that's something then, you like to do when you're trying to reel things back Well, in. it brought the lips back together. That's what we need. Otherwise, that we don't have a reed. We don't have a, a sounding board. You know, that's what our lips vibrate. Yeah. People argue with that, but I think they're wrong about that. You know? I mean, no one knows. And people say, well, where's your tongue? I don't know. I've never been in my mouth. And I've never seen pictures of it. But it's okay. That's If I do everything else right that I've learned. And like I said, why would I stick with anything that going on 60 years of, mm-hmm. of, of the same thing that uh, that works for me you know why would I wouldn't do it if it didn't work so actually then he just said he got me really in literally in five minutes after that he says okay put a bend mechanical bend very mechanical nothing gradual and then hold it out as a long tone Do a few of those. It just came right back together. Yeah, so I okay. think, oh boy, I wish, I hope I can do that myself. But um, I tried it. It wasn't that easy. But you know, I finally got it where I could manage that myself, and I realized, uh huh, that was the cure. Probably also the prevention. So I set up that way before I do anything else. I'm doing like you know those attackless stuff with no. Yeah, so and no attack. Setting and resetting. No, just yeah. who? Then I realized after a while, if I set and reset, I don't force an embouchure in any one place. It yeah. does eventually get to the middle, and mm-hmm. I do that before. And for years, all I did was I just would start on the mouthpiece. I do that before the mouthpiece. And yeah. Then, then I then I'll A B it. I'll do those long tones, like so. If I had the computer on, I'd show you. I'd play along with the piano sample. Again, no attack. No two, poo, coo, anything. You've just played uh, Jurassic Park for, th- yeah. for three hours. High seas all over the place. What do you do at the end of a session uh, to somehow play the next day and do the same thing again. Well, like I was talking about, the sort of the same way I set up. You know, I would try to spend a couple minutes at least doing long tones again and just uh, uh, no, no uh, forcing it in one place. Take it off and just on the lips, comfortable. Let me do a couple others. So you Maybe move your a, finger. I know. So you move your finger. Is that a mental thing? Where while well, you're doing no, the lip I, bend, you move your finger no, almost I mean, as I'm, if to. I'm sampling. I'm comparing it to right. the actual you're trying to valve mute. Yeah. Right. But yeah. you notice I'm doing not doing it gradually. It has to be mechanical, right to it. And then I would reset, and then I would just do a few of those. One, a half step down, a half step up from there, and sort of expand it that way. 
And then uh, if it's really tough and it doesn't feel quite there, then I'll do these arpeggios and, and uh, diatonic scales and the diminished seventh arpeggios that we learned from Stamp. And that, that's the most relaxing because he always told us that the most relaxing interview, interval on a brass instrument is the minor third. Yeah. And so we do things like... <laughs> That's in the books. That's in the stamp books. Cool. That way, and they'll do it, expand it until you get to F sharp. You do it in two octaves, and so on and so yeah. forth. So, and that does bring them together. And that's, and then I start with the same thing the next morning, realizing that I got to play the next morning. You know, so. For some people, a question we like to ask a lot of people is about any hardships or struggles they've had with the instrument. And I think it's really nice for people that watch our interviews to hear some of those things and relate to. Some problems that they have. So can you tell us a story or anything that you've struggled with? with your well playing? earlier I just told you about how to get the lips back together uh, and then having the face go in the record and you're they're writing things for me like uh, oh hey Malcolm yeah he can play at first eight o'clock in the morning you know and that's what I was required to do but I couldn't do it anymore because my lips were so spread. Right, that was the that was the the event like that was the probably the most outstanding one right there. Uh, I forgot to ask you about Vacchiano. You studied yeah. with Jimmy Stamp, but you also studied with Vacchiano. Um, between those two guys, if you were to teach a student today, uh, what are two or three things that you would pass on from those two gentlemen? What, what knowledge did they give you that you think is absolutely necessary to pass on to any of your students? Well, I think with Stamp, the basics of tone production and um, optimum uh, Playing, in other words, getting to be very consistent from day to day, and that's what the goal is. You know, can today feel like yesterday? Can tomorrow feel like today? That's the biggest thing we need as brass players. I mean, as trumpet players, you you can't go in thinking, "Uh oh, yeah, a couple of days ago it was really good. Now it doesn't feel good today, and I got to record. What do I do?" You know, the goal, the nirvana would be, you know, every day feels the same, and you can you don't have to worry about if whether you're going to be able to play. Of course. And I got that confidence because of Jimmy Stamp. And so that it was like the routines you do and the way you warm up and maintain yourself. Now in Vacchiano, he was not talking in those terms about, you know, so much too much movement in your face and when you're moving from note to note. And then, you know, when I watch him play, God bless him, he was a great one of the greatest orchestral players we ever had and uh, you know, but then his head's moving up and down like crazy. I'm thinking, you know, okay. It's not like stamp, and I would start to tell people about it, and still people, you know, oh, that mouthpiece stuff is a lot of BS, you know, and everyone's saying that, you know. They what, what mouthpiece stuff? Well, the mouthpiece stuff, people buzz oh, their mouthpiece. Oh, that stamp the root, does. Like yeah, stamp, yeah, yeah. you know, well, a lot of other people do it too, but it's the way we did it, the prescription to how to do it from stamp was the most thing that leads to efficiency, which therefore leads to consistent playing. So you would, so. You would teach efficiency. You would, you would well, you don't teach it. it. You gain efficiency through doing the right things. You see. Okay. Gotcha. You, teach, you teach the actual method of, you know, playing. Oh, yeah. Okay. When, back to this. When people say, well, the mouthpiece has nothing to do with playing the trumpet. That's Bill Adams said that, you know, and I was there, you know, and then he says, oh, I know people like McNabb, he's our exceptions, and Stevens, you know, they've done all this stuff. But, you know, it does have nothing to do with the trumpet. You know, well, BS, you know. Of course it doesn't because most people go, They just skate up and down. I'm saying, hell no, it doesn't have anything to do with the trumpet. But hold it down here like this with only this much pressure. 
how much force can you use to develop your sound there? I've been doing that for 56 years. Okay, that's why I don't look like mangled chops after this career, you know. But practicing in steps, pitch center to pitch center, steps and arpeggios is the answer. If people, if people would just do that, you'd realize it has everything to do in the trumpet. It's the microscope for your problems. You know, if you go... If you, at any of those, if you slide off the center of the pitch on the mouthpiece, you know what happens. You air out, okay? But on the trumpet, you get away with that with that stuff. Whoops. <laughs> yes, you can get the note, but then you're going to be on the top side of the note. So center of pitch to center of pitch. That's easy. That's all you have to remember. Another question that we like to ask all of our uh, interviewees is uh, we, we want to know your greatest musical experience. <laughs> can you walk us through uh, that experience? That's hard to say because you know, I, I mean, I played with Aaron Copeland. I played Quiet played with City Copeland? with him. Of course, I, I've had a private conference in his dressing room with him about how to how to play Quiet City. You know, yeah. uh, that was 1974. Was is there one moment? Was it having a conversation with Aaron Copeland? One well, moment in your life that was just the well, that was amazing. interesting. I mean, first he told me how to play the piece. I mean, he just says like I'd heard before, it's the bouncing ball. You know. Like a basketball, just like a ball bounces. Okay, that's the idea. That's that's it. And then meeting him, of course, he was he's in the books. You know, he and Leonard Bernstein would be like the American the American composers, the uh, you know the sort of the uh, the chairman of the board of you know, and that's all new. America's new compared to you know Europe. But he's one of those composers who will always be in the history books. Of course, there's been many since then. Now, who was your favorite conductor to work with, and uh, why? Composer, movie composers, which has been the bulk of my career, 45 years of that, mm -hmm. movie and TV composers are pretty much traditionally not good conductors. Uh, anyone who's writing the music and is thinking about the score is not really on board for this as much as a real conductor. Now, in England, they've always done it the other way. Composer sits behind the glass in the booth, and they hire a conductor. He tells them through the earphones, okay, you need that part a little slower, then he does that. Musicians have to follow someone who's correct and absolutely metronomic with a stick, you know. And uh, there's not many of them. There's not many of them at all. It's, it's hard to say who's the best conductor. I mean, there are conductors that are pretty more prepared than most. Uh, John Williams is a pretty decent conductor. He conducts his music very well, but most of them don't. Jerry Goldsmith, you know, he was... His ears were important, you know, because after two or three takes, he, he knew if it was right. Yeah. You know. To me, he was, and uh, I still go to tears when I run into someone, like his music editor for years, Ken Hall, would say, like we're on another session after Jerry died, and he says, Malcolm, I don't know if you realized um, how much Jerry loved you. I'm thinking, my God, he never, because he didn't say much, but yeah. then the guy that does the soundtrack albums up in, uh, in Trotta Records up in Oakland, um, he says, you know, funny thing, Malcolm, I was talking Jerry Goldsmith mastered a lot of his soundtrack CDs with me, and we'd have these long days of, you know, getting this stuff together, and he says, you know something, he talked about you all the time. I'm thinking, well, that's all I need, because <laughs> to me, he was yeah. the greatest. Okay. He was the greatest. Like, I, I feel John Williams is a very good
good craftsman as far as taking things. Now, if someone might say, oh, gee, Star Wars sounds a little bit like Holst the Planets, doesn't it? You know, Well, maybe, but not exactly. The thing is, it's crafted something a la, you know, in the style of, and nailing that on making that work for a particular emotion or a scene is the art. Yeah, you know, that's, and that's that's what he does, and that's great. But far be it from original like Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, it was so innovative. Everything he did, everything yeah. was exciting, and t my pleasure to be with him on so many movies. I mean, not not as many as on John or James Newton Howard. I think I did like more like close to sixty pictures with him. Wow! And just since 1988. Yeah. I have a question for you, um, and it's probably the most important one of this entire interview. Oh. <laughs> um, there are more trumpet players every day. Yeah. Kids are growing up. More kids are in conservatories and universities. There are more people competing for a really not expanding job market, the way, right. I, the way I see it. True. Um, what kind of advice uh, do you have? Really, I, 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 want, I want to hear three things that uh, it, what, what's absolutely necessary to become a studio player. What are the three most important things to make it out here? Preparedness. Timing, meaning being in the right place at the right time to get that opportunity. Because if you sort of look at, at it as a graph, here's opportunity and here's preparedness. When they meet, you've got to do it good or bad. Whatever you do, that's going to be important. You know, So like in the studios, for instance, you know, all of a sudden you get a chance to get in there and there's something really on the spot to play. Believe me, everyone in the band is listening to the new guy really under a microscope you know or if, even if it's a woman you know like, oh how's she is she good you know i mean there's this particular attention paid to that and i think a big f underlying factor to all of it is determination if someone wants anything bad enough doesn't matter what it is to succeed in and you're the kind that can get up off the ground dust yourself off and go back for more over and over and over there's no stopping you I really believe that. I mean, it's the power of the positive mind, you know, that you have to go forward that. But be prepared, obviously. Be prepared and be consistent. If you can get to consistent, efficient playing and where you're always ready and you're always going to do pretty close to your best, that's the best way to be. And never leave your basics, you know, the basics of tone production, you know. Don't do that because no matter how much uh, repertoire you learn or how many things you can play, how high, how loud, how soft, you ain't got nothing until you can do it when you're when it's needed, you know. At right now, like for instance, you know, like in the old days they had the high note trumpet players, you know, they had uh, Maynard Ferguson and Cat Anderson and these guys. Well, Maynard was on the staff of uh, Paramount Studios in the fifties, fifty three through about fifty seven wow. or eight, and um, you know his job. They everyone knew that you know he could he could really play high and everything, but. Okay, uh, are we ready for that? No, no. In the next hour, or sometime. Oh, okay, ten fifteen. Okay, you ready? You know, let's, uh, if, then they write some double C. And, no, <laughs> that's hard. You know, he's, when you're on the road playing every night and everything and you've you got your chops really flying, you can do it, but not in that situation. But there was a guy that came here that did, Bud Brisboy. He was the one that was totally scientific about it, you know. And I worked with him. He was a great guy. Wonderful. So he had a double C whenever he needed it. Or an E or, above that yeah. or anything. <laughs> you've heard him. Have you ever heard Bud Brisboy? No, I, no, oh, I well. don't. You know, he was incredible, accurate, scientific. Uh, he was strong. He was a strong man. He was so good and always trying to be a better all-around player. Put in a symphonic section and sit here, doing a better job every time he did it, you know. 
But the thing is, he could do this other thing so well, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there's been a few like that. Um, yeah, that, that's great. That, that's awesome. But, you know, pre um, be prepared. You have to be consistent and optimum playing, you know. And I'm talking about pitch center being the key. And that has to do with everything I showed you, everything I did with stamp. You know, whether it's the mouthpiece stuff and scales, and you have to think pitch center to pitch center to pitch center. You know, always leave the note. And a key thing is, if you can remember this one, the most important note to worry about is the one you're leaving, how you leave it very much instead of, oh, there's a high note. <laughs> you know, no, no. You know, just make sure you're coming from pitch center and then go into pitch center. Then everything becomes much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the, I was blessed to that, that I learned that way back, you know, when I was young. And I just, I, like, again, why would I do anything for that many years? Now this is the 56th year since I went in Stamp Studio. And why would, why, would I, why would I be doing something that didn't work all these years? I mean, it would be, that would be the definition of complete insanity. So now it's time for the monster round. Uh, it's the segment where we do rapid-fire questions. And let's see what Malcolm McNabb, Mr. Studio Player, can do. What's the longest time you spent in a recording studio at one time? Oh, and in terms of hours? Yes. Oh, I remember we were doing a thing with Robin Hood with Michael Kamen. And uh, the trumpets were there till 1.30 in the morning, I remember. Uh, we, we did a lot of work on that movie for a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we started like in the morning and we did all day, lunch, then all afternoon, then night session, then 1.30 in the morning. Oh, man. But, you know, well, that's not, I mean, I didn't do a lot of records, but rec in the record business, they've been, they used to have the wrecking crew. They work around the clock. They go from one to the other, 24 hours, you yeah. know, but no, I'm not one of those. I'm, I need my beauty rest. You know? <laughs> What's your favorite flexibility study? Flexibility study? Well, um, that's be all this stamp stuff that he gave us. Um, and a lot like Schlossberg, I think Schlossberg would be that. But as long as you're approaching it right, pitch center to pitch center, you know, it's a very worthwhile thing to do. How many trumpets do you own? Oh boy, well, how many trumpets do I own? I don't own the, most of my plane now because the BNS buffet group and everything, they've given me all their instruments. And then I, uh, the one three I designed, of course, and uh, my collection, I've sold off, you know, 20 of them not long ago. <laughs> Gracious. Uh, in the basement. And so probably at one time I own probably about 100. You know, I mean, to start cutting down. <laughs> What's the first car you ever had? First car, uh, I think it was a a Dodge, '49 uh, Dodge or something like that. Yeah. Who is your favorite trumpet player of all time? Probably Louis Armstrong. When your GPS gives you directions, do you ever get mad and talk back to it? Uh, no, I don't give it a chance because I've never been able to use it, and uh, you know, I've even had people laugh at me. Come like three years later. You mean you still don't know how to work this? No, I don't know it. I mean, I get lost constantly now. I used to. I've, I've driven in this town. I've driven in this town for years and years, but you still. I get lost constantly. That's funny. Uh, have you ever shared a milkshake with a woman with two straws? Uh, I don't think so. No. What's the single most important part of trumpet playing? Recovering to do the next job, probably. Without revealing any names, have you ever changed your trumpet part for a famous movie solo without permission? Sure. I have. Forrest Gump said, a life's a bunch of chocolates. Which one are you? No, he didn't. Life is a box of chocolates. 
It's like a Boy, box. It's like a box of chocolates. Life is life of... Like a box of chocolates. You're right. I'm sorry, but I still want to hear the answer. Um, what, what about it? What about the chocolates? I'm trying to quit. Let me try I mean, it one more time. I want, yeah. let me try, maybe make more sense if I say it correctly. Um, Forrest Gump said, life is like a box of chocolates. Let's move on. Yeah, I'm a, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm borderline diabetic, and I don't eat sugar anymore, so I, I don't even think about chocolates anymore. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, what's your favorite trumpet solo? Oh, the last one I was able to get through and get a good take on, maybe, and then I don't know what that would be. <laughs> Who's the greatest composer of all time? Oh, boy, I think Bach. Where is your favorite place to play the trumpet? Oh, in a public restroom, because it's just really a lot of reverb, you know. No, actually right here in my studio. <laughs> honey wagon? Honey wagon. <laughs> in the honey wagon, yeah. And finally, who is your greatest influence um, outside of music? I think Yuan Racy, who is a trumpet player and a great musician, but just on life lessons and the spirituality of someone that you run into people maybe a couple of times in your life that that make that impression and then you also notice that they're the people that someone meets just one time in their life one day and they're touched and they never forget them mm -hmm. you know that's the way i'd like to be i'm just not like that though but i mean I, I emulate that and as far as generosity and definitely help and uh you know when you get up in the, in the morning you have a choice of being nice or not nice, you know, and just try to be nice, you know, because I'm not, I don't have a good history of that, you know, being the most pleasant person around, but that you get up decided, no matter what your challenges are, that you can actually um, just decide to be happy and make other people happy. I think that's the best, you know. If I could do that and if I was like him, and so I would, I would try to emulate him and I've always tried, you know. I mean, I think that, and the, all the best people I've known and the best teachers certainly were generous and also kind, you know. I mean, not all of them were, but but when someone has the goods and they know how to the information you need to learn, uh, give it to you with generosity and with kindness, rather than the you know like someone who doesn't. There's too many people that don't enjoy what they're doing. It could be a doctor, it could be a teacher, it could be you know. But they're obviously they're they're mean because of that, because they're not happy being there and they want to be someplace else, fishing or on the golf course or whatever. When you're, when you're doing it, you know, and if you're not happy, you're, you're not really giving someone a complete, the complete um, experience they should have, you know. Yeah. And with kindness, you know, it's, it's really probably the most important. Thank we're you so much. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, I was just thinking we're just people and, you know, we're, none of us are getting out of this alive, you know. So yeah. we might as well be nice while we're here. <laughs> Malcolm McNabb, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for Hey, my here. pleasure. Mm -hmm.